Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Thursday, April 13th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. 1212 item comes into my inbox from the Washington Post. Leaker of U.S. secret documents worked on a military base, friends say. Ooh, the noose is tightening about the Discord server leaker. And that would have been a big scoop, except for the fact that five minutes earlier, 1207, in my inbox from the New York Times, they got the guy. They got his name. They got his rank. They got the make and model of his car. It's a red pickup truck. They were there in the guy's driveway. The Post story was sympathetic to the lad describing the Discord server in which he disseminated classified documents as, quote, a gathering spot that had been a pandemic refuge, particularly for teen gamers locked in their houses and cut off from their real-world friends. So sad. The Post extended the leaker anonymity and included quotes from other lonely members of the Discord server who were also afforded anonymity. Those members called the leaker the OG. OG was not hostile to the U.S. government. However, he had disagreed with several occasions such as Waco and Ruby Ridge and thought that the government is overreaching in several aspects. Well, guess what? OG doesn't get to make that decision. OG doesn't get to have what knowledge he gleaned from a fairly well-done Showtime series inform his choices about the permissibility of leaking classified documents. Classified documents, by the way, with enormous life or death consequences. No, you don't get to do that. And by you, I mean 21-year-old member of the Air National Guard, Jack Teixeira. The Times printed his name, his general kind of address, at least his hometown, his rank, his outfit, Airman Teixeira. They kept calling him Airman Teixeira. Thank you, newspaper men, Toller, Schwerz, Mellon, Tybert, Brown, Gibbons, Neff, and Barnes, and five others credited or byline journalists who nabbed the nudnik. Anyway, Airman Teixeira was a 21-year-old member of the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, the intelligence wing being far afield from the intelligence brain. His motivations were explained or described through his teenage Discord group acolytes in the Post piece, his actions shown through in the New York Times piece. The Post described younger members of the group as drawn to the OG's bravado and skill with weapons. OG, a.k.a. Airman Teixeira, was, quote, like an uncle or father figure, one said. That is sweet. Here is a description of Airman OG Teixeira inhabiting that elder statesman status. Quote, in a video seen by The Post, the man who the member said is OG stands at a shooting range wearing safety glasses and ear coverings and holding a large rifle. He yells a series of racial and anti-Semitic slurs into the camera, then fires several rounds at a target. The New York Times describes the group of youngsters in search of role models as a, quote, private online group called Thug Shaker Central, where about 20 to 30 people, mostly young men and teenagers, came together over a shared love of guns, racist online memes, and video games. Well, two-thirds of those things are wholesome American fun, but maybe only one-third should be. Then there is the leaked, in some cases, top-secret classified documents used to impress the teens of Thug Shaker Central. That's when screaming racist and anti-Semitic sentiments into the air at a shooting range just doesn't do the trick. It is a cliche to say that we live in the stupidest times. It is fresh and original to say Airman Teixeira seems to have violated his oath, the law, and moral responsibility. 
The Times story emphasized the recklessness of Teixeira. The Post story captures the sadness of his followers, ending with these words. Asked why he was prepared to help OG, even at the risk of his own freedom, the young man replied without hesitation, quote, he was my best friend. Aw, and here's the kicker in the Times, quoting another member of Thug Shaker Central, or who knows, maybe it was the same member, talking about OG Airman to share a quote, this guy was a Christian, anti-war, just wanted to inform some of his friends about what's going on. We have some people in our group who are in Ukraine. We like fighting games. We like war games. Idiots. On the show today, when companies face protests, a common way for sympathetic media to make it seem like the backlash is working. But first, you know why we're here? I mean, here doing the gist and listening and trying to find things that interest us. It's to make us happy. As the Partridge family says, come on, get happy. But what makes for a happy life? According to the Harvard study of adult development, it's the strength of relationships. Dr. Robert Waldinger directed that study and joins us next to discuss relationships, money, their connection with happiness, and how much of it can be connected to the generation into which you were born. Dr. Robert Waldinger up next. Hello world, here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. What makes a good life? This is a question that we've all been asking ourselves, but now it's available in TED Talk and book form and the longest study of happiness known to man... So what makes a good life? Lessons from the longest happiness study was a TED Talk that's got tens of millions of views. One of the most popular TED Talks ever. And the book that's related to this talk was written by Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Dr. Waldinger is the director of the study. He's a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And, uh, I'm pleased to welcome him to The Gist. It makes me happy. I hope he's happy to be here. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Yes. Fantastic. Let's not get all uh, over-enthused before we get to the nuts and bolts of the findings, which are connections, right? Connections to other people are highly correlative, more than we ever knew, to happiness. Yeah. And more than 
correlative, like we're beginning to understand how it works, like how the connections actually get into our bodies and change our bodies. And that's the holy grail for a researcher, not just saying, well, A happens to go alongside of B, but we can see how A gets you to B. Mm -hmm. And so this way we could find out what friendship is, what parts of the brain it uh, inspires and create a drug. That's the point? The friendship uh, not drug? Not quite, not quite, but that's a good <laughs> fantasy. I'll go with that. Well, what what kind of friendships work? What what kind of friendships don't work? How to cultivate these happiness-inducing friendships? Not just friendships, just connections. Well, you know, all kinds of friendships work, actually. Um, so certainly our most intimate connections, right? Family, friends, romantic partners, but also workmates for sure. But the person who makes you your coffee at the coffee shop in the morning, the person who checks you out at the grocery store, all of these little connections too give us hits of well-being. The real question is, is there positive emotion connected with it? Or is there just nonstop acrimony and tension? Because the positive emotion seems to have a great deal to do with the health-promoting effects of relationships. Right. So I can imagine there are probably many interactions during the day with people or without that might give me a little bit of a dopamine hit, right? If they were just monitoring my body, I don't know, maybe every time I saw a funny video or every time um, a pleasing smell wafted across my na nostrils, I'd feel a little better off than a second before. But you're not saying all those things are lifting us and making us long-term happy. You're saying it's more that the interpersonal human-to-human -human connection has a greater effect on our long-term health than, you know, the good smell or the funny dog video. Yes, because relationships give us so many things. First of all, they give us fun and they give us connection and stimulation and all kinds of things, right? But they also help us through hard times. I mean, you know, I have direct this 85-year study. These people originally went through the Depression. They went through World War II. And when we asked them, how did you get through these really hard times to a person, they would talk about their relationships. So what we know is that relationships are a huge part of the safety net that helps us get through the slings and arrows that are always coming our way. This is good. We're very social animals. On the downside, because we are very social animals and the group dynamic is strong within us, we tend to, as they say in 12-step programs, compare and despair. And that is antithetical to long-term happiness, right? Absolutely. The more we compare ourselves, literally, the more often during the day we compare ourselves, the less happy we are. Research shows us that. Yeah, and also uh, with this dynamic, social animals, being shunned from the group has tremendous effects on us. Absolutely. That's why exile was a terrible punishment in ancient times. Still is. You know, we think of, of really tight-knit communities where ostracism becomes the, the ultimate punishment. And for many people, they don't know how they're going to survive. All of us need to feel like we belong someplace. And that's probably one of the core findings that we have, that, that a securely attached relationship to somebody in the world is essential to this kind of well-being we're talking about. So it's hard because everything that I just laid out in the past couple minutes, which is comparing despair is bad and social shunning is bad, but having a pleasant, having a very deep conversation with a loved one is great, but even a pleasant interaction with a barista is great. It's all part of our 
anthropology. It's all part of our makeup. And so there is no, if you go to the extremes and you say, you know, I, I am a rock, I am an island, you, sh- you limit the downside of shunning or comparison, but you also limit the upside. On the other hand, if you are, I think this is true, if you are so open and your emotions are such that you are very outgoing to the stranger, it seems like it's going to be very hard for you not to think about so many other people and how you might compare to them. Um, It seems like there's no, if it does seem that going to the extremes uh, is not a good strategy for long-term happiness. Well, being open to other people does not mean comparing yourself to other people. One does not go with the other. Some people are much more inclined to compare themselves and to have that sense of FOMO. Those are the people who scroll through your Instagram feed, right? And they're just looking at other people's curated lives, but also are talking to other people and constantly comparing. Other people are not doing that. They're just curious. They're just interested in other people. I mean, you and I right now, I don't find myself comparing myself to you, quite honestly. I'm interested in you, and I'm interested in how we're having this conversation, but the comparison doesn't really occur to me. Right. And I think people vary a lot on that dimension. Let's talk about the cohort. Who's in your study? It started in 1938. It was mostly white Boston, or it's all white Bostonians to begin with, right? Yeah. Two groups. One really privileged, Harvard College sophomores, 19-year-old guys. The other, really underprivileged, not just born to Boston's poorest families, but to families that were so troubled that they were known on average to five social service agencies for domestic violence, substance abuse, terrible familial illness and mental illness. Okay, all that. But both studies were studies of thriving. Both studies were studies of how do people stay on good developmental paths? And so we have this very privileged group and this very underprivileged group. And how much better did the privileged group uh, do? And, you know, how do we actually measure that by the crudest measure would be something like, you know, net wealth. Maybe there's a lifespan aspect to it. But this is why we hire, you know, brilliant people like you to get a good measurement of successful outcomes in life. (laughs) Well, you don't take brilliance to figure out some of these big differences. So the inner city guys made so much less money on average than the Harvard guys. In 1970, when we looked at this, the inner city guys had an average income of 16,000 a year and the Harvard guys 70,000 a year. Another big measure, the Harvard guys lived on average 10 years longer than the inner city guys. But one of the places where there wasn't a difference was in average level of happiness. The Harvard guys were not happier than the inner city guys. Privilege, and wealth don't buy you happiness. Well, don't they buy you health care at some point? Yes, they do. <laughs> and doesn't and lack of health care cause deep unhappiness and despair? Y- you are pointing to something really important. Okay, 25 of our inner city guys, of 456, 25 of them went to college, graduated from college. And those guys lived on average just as long as the Harvard men. And we think it's not because they had a college diploma in hand. We think it's because of the education that they got. And that education meant they were more likely to get the public health messages coming out in the 70s and 80s about not smoking, about not abusing drugs, 
about diet and exercise and that those messages came later to people with less education. And in the years since, uh, you kept tracking the original cohort, but in the years since, was it expanded? Was this study expanded to include women, to include people of ethnic minorities? It was expanded to include women, all the spouses, then the children, more than half of whom are female, no inclusion of ethnic minorities. What we decided was that our unique value as a study was in having this backlog, this treasure trove of information about each family. If we bring in new groups, we won't have that history documented. So what we decided was we would collaborate with and take our uh, cues from studies of more diverse groups to make sure that we weren't presenting findings that were just idiosyncratic to a bunch of white people. So that's what we've done. That makes sense. Uh, I wouldn't want to muddy or water down your study and you'd have to use other studies, uh, incorporate them just to check in with yourself and to get more insight. But do you have any way of knowing if you had been studying inner city black youth of that time, how the results might differ? Oh, we have a good hypothesis. So the inner city group was able to buy homes. They were able to send their kids to decent schools because they could live in school districts that were reasonably good um, because they were all white. If these people had been people of color, this would never have happened. So that the average income of the second generation is just about equal between the descendants of the inner city people and the Harvard people. The thing about the city of Boston was that in 1938, when the study started, it was 94.7% Caucasian, the city of Boston was. So the, the waves of migration of people of color didn't come to the city of Boston until after World War II. So if you want to start a study in 1938, you study white people. Oh, I understand all that, but I have been reading and I've been talking to researchers and there is a growing body of evidence that if you look at just stress factors and the allostatic load, which can be measured, which is often higher, very often higher for minorities and people of color, you come to the conclusion that not only is it a bit harder or appreciably harder, but so much harder to actually achieve happiness in this society, given the stressors on you. And I wonder what your findings are using the other findings of other people who had a broader base of um, participants would say about that. Well, that's interesting. I don't know the answer to your question. I think as you do that all the, the onslaughts of microaggression and discrimination day in, day out has to take a toll. The differences in happiness are not as great, I don't think, among ethnic groups as we would imagine. Right. Um, That's everything I've seen says that as well, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think what you're saying makes total sense to me. And I think that, that perhaps it takes more of a toll on our physical health than people imagine it does. Um, we know that particularly African-Americans are much more subject to hypertension, to type 2 diabetes than Caucasians, for example. We don't know all the causes of that. Some of them are genetic, but some of them are almost certainly psychosocial. 
Another thing about studying 19-year-olds in 1938 is that it's a pretty great time in terms of economics. Sure, they have to go through World War II, but right afterwards when they come out, uh, the economy really starts booming. And in fact, if you're 19 and 1938, when you're 21 and 22, GDP growth was 18 and 19%. It was two of the greatest years ever. And then from 1959 to 1969, so when you're between 40 and 50, when you're really maxing out your earnings, it was literally the greatest decade for economic growth. That certainly plays into happiness. Any way of knowing how much it plays into happiness. You are pointing to something that we think about all the time, which is the generational cohort effect. Essentially, what does it mean to be studying one group of people born at a certain time, going through certain cycles of social change, of economic progress, and then decline, all of that. So that's what you're saying. And we know that. We know that the same people born now would fare differently economically and socially, tremendously differently. I mean, we know that another another dramatic change is the role of women. I mean, this, our first generation um, had much more traditional roles for women pretty much locked in. Very few women had professional lives in our first generation study. Whereas in the second generation who are baby boomers, many more women have active work lives. Um, and in the third generation, more still. So it was, I think, in the research agreed upon or conventional wisdom, but based on studies by Daniel Kahneman and others, that after a certain point, money doesn't make you much happier. $75,000, Kahneman said. But now, and by now, I mean within the last couple months, there was a big new study where Kahneman did a challenge study against uh, one of his co-authors. Matt Killingsworth. Yeah. Killingsworth. And... This has been somewhat exploded. You get happier from 75,000 to 200,000, which, by the way, very much comports with my experience. I used to, it used to <laughs> maybe be a consoling thought that, you know, it's not really making you happier. But my God, when I've had fluctuations in income and you can't afford things and you can't afford things, you're much happier getting closer to the 200,000 than the 75,000. Sure, every study can be uh, gainsayed by a future study, but do you put a lot of faith on what killing? worth found and how does it affect your findings? I do put a lot of faith in that. I think that they're what they called an adversarial collaboration is the way to go. And Kahneman actually invited Killingsworth to do this. And I think they did a great job, right? That's the way science ought to be done, where two essential adversaries cooperate in saying, what do these data really show? So, But the other interesting thing that the data show is that the unhappy people did not become happier as they made more money. And so the take-home message that I get from that is that if you are looking for wealth to make you happier, don't look there. Because if you are unhappy, it is unlikely to make you happier. You're part of that unhappy subgroup that's not going to get happier as you make more money. You, Mike, were probably relatively content and just were reacting to the ups and downs of your finances. And you were more likely to get happy as you got closer to 200,000. Right, right. But I would say that it's not the case that making more money won't make you happier. It is the case that making more money won't allow you to cross the threshold from unhappy to happy. Yeah, fair enough. Yes. 
And tomorrow we will once more be joined by Dr. Robert Waldinger to talk more about the Harvard study of adult development and his key insights as to what makes for happiness. And now the spiel, and it's time for Mike's Media and Marketing Minute. And in today's Mike's Media and Marketing Minute, a rule of thumb. We start with Dylan Mulvaney. Never heard of Dylan Mulvaney? Then you're either not in the Fox, New York Post, Tucker Carlson grievance sphere, or you're not a Bud Light aficionado with encyclopedic knowledge of even their minor forays into niche marketing. So Dylan Mulvaney is a trans woman influencer and eh, not a comedian exactly, but a comic presence online. She has 10 million TikTok followers. Bud Light partnered with her for a March Madness promotion, playing off Mulvaney's persona of not having any clue about what a typical Bud Light drinker might have a clue about. I got some Bud Lights for us. So I kept hearing about this thing called March Madness. And I thought we were all just having a hectic month, but it turns out it has something to do with sports. And I'm not sure exactly which sport, but either way, it's a cause to celebrate. So far, so nothing. It was a minor ad buy. Mulvaney has some social media presence. She's not a bomb thrower, but she is trans. And she did once interview Joe Biden about anti-trans laws making their way through the states. So that was enough to put her on the radar of conservatives like Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Soon after the Bud Light endorsement was announced, other members of the right and alt-right made punishing Anheuser-Busch, the corporate parent of Bud Light, made that their new cause. There was Benny Johnson tweeting things and Kid Rock shooting things. Grandpa's feeling a little frisky today. Let me uh, say something to all you and be as clear and concise as possible. Fuck Bud Light and fuck Anheuser-Busch. Have a terrific day. But more central to Mike's Media and Marketing Minute, now on Minute, what, three, is the coverage of the stock of Anheuser-Busch. The coverage positions that stock, symbol, B-U-D, bud, as in the drunk tank. New York Post, Anheuser-Busch loses more than $5 billion in value amid Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light controversy. Fox News, Anheuser-Busch sheds roughly $5 billion in value since Bud Light's Dylan Mulvaney sparked outrage. Wow, losing $5 billion. You know, in 2022, Anheuser-Busch made $10 billion total in income. So one pretty minor marketing campaign has already lost them half their income? No, of course it hasn't. Anheuser-Busch has a market cap valuing all of their stock at well over $100 billion. So a 1% drop in the stock, which happens every day that there's not a 1% rise in the stock, will cost them or make them a billion dollars, except this isn't a billion dollars anyone can put on a ledger or in their pockets. It's just the value overall of all existing shares. It goes up and down, mostly up if you're a successful U.S. company. But if you want to write an article about a massive amount of money, anytime such a stock with a high market cap takes a slight dip, you can write that article. 
And any dip in stock price is, of course, about a lot of things. Most of those things not having the attention of Kid Rock. The Dylan Mulvaney backlash isn't nothing. It's not an absolute zero. I'm sure people in headquarters are worried about it. There are reports of some consumers being somewhat angry about what Anheuser-Busch has done. I'm sure there will be stories about some consumers supporting Anheuser-Busch for doing exactly what they did. In terms of absolute moves... Anheuser-Busch, stock symbol Bud, went from $66 last week to $64 today. Their big competitor, Heineken, stock symbol price Heine, went up a dollar. Wall Street traders might have been a little bit nervous about Anheuser-Busch, might have been a little less inclined to take ambiguous news as positive news, or not. But headlines that confirm the predilections of the audience they're writing for are terribly misleading. But the same thing happened with the supposed boycott of Spotify in January of 2022. Remember when Neil Young said, either Rogan or me, and a couple of other artists, including podcasters like Roxanne Gay and Brene Brown, joined him? At the time, there was an article like this one, headline in The Wrap, Spotify loses $2 billion a stock plus after Neil Young's Joe Rogan protest. Tristan Snell, self-ID'd as lawyer, fighter for democracy, commentator MSNBC and CNN, tweeted, Spotify stock price is down 25% in the last month. The Dow only 4.83%. It was a very popular tweet, 16,000 likes. Not mentioned in the tweet was that 20% of the 25% dip was before the Neil Young story broke. Variety headlines, Spotify lost more than $2 billion in market value after Neil Young pulled his music over Joe Rogan's podcast. That's the same market value or market cap calculation that makes a tiny change in stock price seem enormous in terms of income or profit or anything else that's real to a company. Companies do not care about a 1% drop or rise in stock price. It happens. Since the Neil Young versus Joe Rogan contra tem, Spotify stock has gone down, but that's based on the fundamentals of the business of Spotify. Joe Rogan subscribers went up. No major or even middling artists joined a mass protest test. And this year, Spotify stock is up 70%. Brene Brown, the most prominent podcaster to join the protest, rejoined Spotify after less than a month. There seems to be no discernible lingering effect. Neil Young's still off Spotify. Well, the catalog he controls is off it. You'll find Neil Young's songs there if they're on a soundtrack or a live show. His old bandmate from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Graham Nash, he joined the protest. He's largely off it. And David Crosby, Well, that guy's dead, but not because of any misinformation peddled by Joe Rogan. The only thing I would believe when you see, and this really gets to the nub of the Mike's Media and Marketing Minute, the only thing I would believe when you see stories about wild stock craterings, if those stories are based on market cap and not percentage drop, always be supremely skeptical. If they have to tell you the billions in value or the billions in assets or market cap, it's because there's not a concomitant actual cratering of the stock price. Sometimes stocks, by the way, do crater. 
Netflix did. Meta's gone poorly. But when that happens, people will always first quote the percentage decrease. And then they'll say, oh, by the way, this represents, and it's always going to be, tens of billions of dollars. I'd also say, and this goes a little far afield of the media and marketing minute, but just general life advice, don't trust health claims of MMA experts slash podcasters. Also, you might not want to take your beer cues from TikTok influencers who don't know what March Madness is, nor your gun control cues from someone who uses a semi-automatic to neutralize metal cans containing a liquid that's 4.2% alcohol by volume. 4.2% is not a lot, but it is a lot more than Budstock actually dropped since Kid Rock took aim. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson Sr. produces The Gist. Michelle Pesca philanthropizes in a vice presidential capacity for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com